Genesis chapter 15. Then open your Bibles there. Genesis 15 tonight. As we get ready to enter this chapter in the ongoing uh, saga of Abram and his faith development and his growing up from a very childlike faith, actually from no faith in God at all, to a childlike faith and to a maturing faith as we watch his life go on, I want to ask you to do something here right at the beginning, and that's just to stop. We all come midweek and, and to Sunday worship services and different occasions like this with kind of the wave of the day behind us. You know, and, and there may even still be things that are uh, put, uh, poking at your mind and, and that you're thinking about. There may be uh, situations at work that, that kind of drag you down. I, I don't know how your week has been. Some of you are sitting there going, hey, it's just been terrific, everything's great. For others, it's just, it was all you could do just to, to get in here tonight. And I just want to encourage you just to stop for a moment. And as we sang in the song, Breathe, this is one of the most encouraging chapters that we have yet encountered. And what God is going to say, I ran across just in the very first verse, um, right at the right time, some amazingly encouraging things. And my prayer for you tonight is that you walk out of here encouraged with the incredible love of the Father for you. So as we get into this, let's pray, let's stop, leave the day behind and, and go before our Father. Lord, I know because we're human that represented among us there is pain and there's hurt, there's frustration, there is just that sense of being worn out, tired. There's also an amount of joy and excitement. There are good things happening among all our lives. But, but all of this mixed stuff that we bring before you as a group of people, uh, we just want to lay it at your feet tonight. And I pray, Lord, that uh, if there is struggle, you would, you would help us to set it aside. And if there is joy, even, that you would help us to set that aside and just be still before you tonight to listen to what you have to say to us. And I pray, Father, Lord, I, I pray that these words in this chapter, your word, Lord, would just go right inside of our hearts and make itself at home. Work your way around in and through us. Surround us with your love tonight, Father. And may we see what a great and glorious God you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, after what things? Chapter 14, you may recall, was a very interesting chapter in the life of Abraham. Not only did he go out and rescue Lot and make war against five kings and all of their armies to do so, but on the way back from battle, he met that very interesting fellow, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. When we talked about on Sunday, that Christophany, I believe, of Jesus in the Old Testament, that picture of Jesus. And you need to know that at a minimum... At a minimum, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He, in everything about him, in the way he is described in Scripture, both in Genesis 14 and also in Hebrews chapter 7, that Melchizedek is this wonderful picture of Christ. Even to the extreme that he brings out bread and wine to meet Abraham. The elements of communion. But I don't think he's just a picture of Christ. I, I really believe he was Christ. I believe that was one of the, the pre-New Testament, pre-incarnation uh, experiences of Jesus. 
that he came there. And we talked about that on Sunday, and hopefully one of these days we'll have tapes or CDs available if you, if you want to go back and listen to that. But all that has happened, and so it was after all these things. Oh, oh yeah, one other thing. At the end of chapter 15, just after Abram had met Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, king of peace, broken bread, tied to him, worshipped him, had this wonderful spiritual experience, along comes the king of Sodom to throw a temptation in his way. And remember, we talked about the king of Sodom is certainly a type of Satan. Driven by Satan, tempting Abram, hey, keep all the spoils of war for yourself, but let me have the souls, the people. Well, after all of these things, we're told immediately that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, John chapter 8, verse 56, and we looked at this on Sunday, tells us, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in, in one of these classic confrontations, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, what I would say to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Jesus not only claims to predate Abraham, but he claims that Abraham saw him face-to-face, experienced him, and, and was rejoicing to see him. Amazing. And we ask the question, when did this happen? And there are two possibilities. One of those possibilities is what we talked about on Sunday, that truly Melchizedek was Jesus, that Abraham saw him and was glad. The other possibility is right here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Look at the phrase, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And I ask the question, how does a word show up in a vision? Don't you normally hear a word and see something, a person in a vision? When I say vision, isn't the first thing that comes to mind something you see? As opposed to something you hear? But the Bible doesn't tell us that the word of the Lord came to Abram. It says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram saw the word of the Lord. Who is the word of the Lord? Who's the word? Jesus is. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us also that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit both of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart Psalm 138 verse 2 tells us that you have magnified your word above your name and Revelation 19.13 tells us his name is called the word of God Jesus is the word and so this is a second possibility that Abraham came face to face in a vision with the word of the Lord, the word who is Jesus. Now, in this first verse, there are several first mentions. We keep talking about those. There's a lot of first mentions in Genesis. First time something is talked about, first time a word is used in the Bible. There are several of them just in this first verse. And the first one is the word of the Lord. This is the first time that this phrase is used in Scripture. And isn't it interesting that as it's used, it's used in terms of a vision. Abram sees, not just hears, sees the word. He sees the word. I think you're making a little too much out of this. Am I? Think about this. 
Again, it's the first time the Hebrew word for word is used in its most common meaning, literally, word. It's also immediately repeated in verse 4. Look down at that. It says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. And we'll get there in just a minute. But it's repeated a second time. Furthermore, it's the only time in all of God's appearances to Abram, and there are several, that this phrase, the word of the Lord, appears in a vision. In fact, every other time that God appears to Abram, it's different ways. One time he'll send an angel to talk to Abram with a word from the Lord. Another time, just recently we saw this, this Melchizedek scene. Another time God just speaks to Abraham, but in this case, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And I think it may be Jesus. Well, Rick, is it Melchizedek or is it the word of the Lord? Which one is it? Okay, both. Either. It could go either way. But it's amazing that in this moment, when the word of the Lord appears to Abram, what the word of the Lord communicates. Now listen to this. Jesus is the sum of all that can be communicated. Jesus is the reason that we have communication in the first place. The Bible tells us clearly, John 1.18 says, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus explains to us, communicates to us, the Father. As you study and get to know and understand Jesus, you are doing two things at once. Not only are you understanding this person, Jesus Christ, but you are also understanding the Father God. You are seeing God in His behavior, in His actions, in His emotions, in His reactions. In the life of Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus explains. He's the Word, the perfect Word, to explain God. And that's why studying the life of Christ is so important. Looking at Jesus is so important. I don't have the words to express God to you. But He does. And the Word is Jesus. Or Yeshua in the Hebrew. The Word of the Lord. Now this is absolutely wonderful. Look at what the Word of the Lord says to Abram in this vision. Three more first mentions, by the way, all at once. He says, do not fear. Abram, do not fear. This phrase will go on to be repeated 58 times in the Bible and another 46 times worded as, do not be afraid. And you have to ask the question, why is God saying, don't be afraid? Now, possibly just because Abram looks up and the word of the Lord appears and, and it's stunning. He is stunning. He is frightening. What happens to John? In the book of Revelation, when John receives the revelation, does anyone recall what happens to John when he first sees Jesus? The Bible tells us he falls down like a dead man. He goes into cardiac arrest. He cannot handle the truth. He can't handle seeing the word. Jesus in the flesh. And so it's very possible that, that Abraham is just sees Jesus or sees the word of the Lord and steps back in fear and the first words out of the Lord's mouth are, Hey, don't be afraid. It's alright. It's okay. Not your Lord. But I think there's another possibility here. Why he said, fear not. Abraham comes out of the battle in chapter 14. And now, think about it. Prior to the battles with these five kings and all their armies, Abraham didn't have any enemies. He was just that guy who came into Canaan's land who kind of set up shop and was living there. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and all the ites are, are looking at him. They're checking him out. Who is this guy? But now, Abraham casts his lot with his nephew. He goes to save him. And now Abraham has some enemies. He's got some guys who are against him. Now suddenly, five kings and all their armies. And Abraham may very well at this point be thinking as he comes back from the battle... 
okay, I didn't get any spoils for the war. Lot's back in, in Sodom. He's headed home. And here I stand, and what have I gotten out of this? Nothing but a whole lot of enemies. So possibly Abram's just kind of afraid. And the first words out of the Lord's mouth are, Do not fear, Abram. Why? Because I am a shield to you. How awesome is that? In the lives that we live, how wonderful is it to realize that the God of the, cre- of the, of the whole universe, the Creator, our Father, is also our shield. That He goes before us. That He stands between us and any danger or harm that might come our way. God wants to be our shield. And for Abram, He is a shield. Flip in your Bibles. Keep your finger there and flip over to Psalm chapter 3. Third Psalm in verse 1. It's written up as a morning prayer of trusting God, written by David, but it's written by David at an interesting time, Psalm chapter 3. He wrote this in his old age. David has had quite a life, but now in his old age, when you would think as an older king it would be nice for him to be settling down, he is now fleeing Jerusalem. He is running for his life because his son Absalom is pursuing him. And once again, David is on the run. Once again, he's being pursued. And in chapter, in Psalm 3, it tells us, starting in verse 1, just listen to David's cry. He says, O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Kind of like Abram's. Many are rising up against you. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory And the one who lifts my head. There's a song that goes with that. A beautiful song. You're a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. Verse 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Get this picture. David's on the run for his life. Again, an old man on the run for his life from his very own son who is out to destroy him, who is out to usurp the throne, who wants to take his father's life. And as David's running, he cries out to God, God, please be here for me. Everybody's against me. They're all after me. You're a shield. You're the lifter of my head. And the moment David realizes that, verse 5, I lay down and slept. The peace that comes from recognizing that God is your shield is wonderful. David gets a good night's sleep. And it tells us, he says, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Ow. That whole shattered the teeth thing. David uses this from time to time and it's pretty graphic. Of course, you know, from time to time in our lives, don't you ever... No, maybe you don't want to shatter somebody's teeth, but David did. Verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you and I. Salvation doesn't belong to me. It's not my responsibility to save me. It's not my responsibility to protect myself. It's not my responsibility to keep myself safe in a very dark world. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the shield. He's the one who goes before us. You may recall in chapter 13 that Abram gave Lot first choice of the land. You can flip back to chapter 15, by the way. 
And when Abraham gave him first choice, he did so because he understood something or was beginning to understand something. He was beginning to understand God's economy. This whole idea that if I give away my best, God provides for me even better than my best. And so Abraham stood back and said, Lot, take your pick of the land and I'll, wherever you go, I'll go the other direction. And he gave that up. And we read the words of Jesus speaking to Peter. We read these a couple weeks back. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution. Now, Jesus, why do you throw persecutions in there? It was such a great list. Mothers and brothers and sisters and farms and children and all this good stuff and houses, I can deal with that. But along with persecutions, does that have to come? Folks, listen, along with God's multiplied goodness, you can expect persecution. It's not a matter of whether or not it might happen. It will happen. Especially if you determine to live godly in Christ Jesus. The moment you stand up to be counted... Among those following Jesus, you can plan on persecution. Well, yeah, because it's a dark world that we live in. Not just from the dark world. Sometimes persecution comes from even within the church. What are you talking about? Have you ever noticed in those times, and, and, and we all do this, we get into real kind of comfortable relationships in our Christian lives. And we're, we're almost more comfortable doing, how do I put it, wrong things with Christians than we are with non-Christians. Because with non-Christians we think, yeah, I've got to be an example. But with my Christian friends, I can tell that joke, or I can see that movie, or I can do that thing. We all kind of, we understand, we're all forgiven. It's okay. But what happens in our Christian relationships when someone says, you know what? i got to stand for more righteousness in my life. I have to pursue God more purposefully in my life. It really unsettles other Christians around us sometimes. And so persecution can come from without or within, but the bottom line is it will come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't tell you this to disturb you or worry you, but just to remind you that we, like Abraham, have a shield. And that shield is Jesus word of the Lord. Take a look at what else the word of the Lord says. Because he says, don't fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. But he also says, your reward shall be very great. And I'm so disappointed in that translation. Because that's not what he said. I am a shield to you, he says. But, he says, I am your shield, your very great reward. He doesn't say, I'm your shield and your, your reward will be great too. He says, I am your shield, your very great reward. Guess what, Abram? I'm your reward. Your reward is not something else, something out there, something that I can give you, although I can give you anything. I'm your reward. It's me. I, I'm, I'm your reward. Now think about this again. What did Abraham get for defeating the five kings? Nothing. He took no, spoil, no spoils for the battle. He took no riches like the king of Sodom offered him. He has nothing to show for his efforts. But God says, Abram, I've got a reward for you. It's not the material stuff you can pick up in the world. My reward for you is me. I think that is so cool. 
Folks, too many of us are looking for something from the Lord as opposed to just looking for the Lord. Man, if I follow God, will He do this in my life? Will He make my life better? Will He take me in, in a better direction? John MacArthur wrote a book just recently. I'm just starting to read this. Very unsettling. And what, Sharon, what's the title of it? You remember again? It's um, Hard to Believe by John MacArthur. And, and he takes a very hard-line approach to following Jesus and the true cost that is involved. He's talking about how oftentimes in our, in our mainline Christian lives, we're looking for something from God. That, that we think, if I follow him, I'll, I'll be more healthier, I'll be more happier, I'll be more wealthier, or things will go better in my life. And much of the time, that's not the case at all. In fact, as we've talked about in here before, sometimes taking a step in the direction of Jesus makes life harder, more difficult, more challenging. It, it brings along more persecution. And in those days, when it's dark and hard and distressing, we, we look at God and go... But Lord, I, I came after you. I, like Peter. Hey, we gave up houses and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and land to follow you. And he says, yeah, you'll get a hundred times that back. And persecutions. You're going to get that too. But we miss the whole point that God is saying, I'm the reward. It's me. It's not something out here. It's not a better life in this short little life that we live, which is so tiny anyway. This is a drop in the bucket. It's, it's here and it's gone. And God's saying... I mean, I could give you a reward right now, but it's over so quickly. Wouldn't you rather have me? I'm eternal. Do not fear, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Psalm 37, in verse 1, tells us, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. And do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. God's agenda is not the satisfaction of our worldly needs. That's, what's not on, that's not what's on His plate. When you wake up first thing in the morning, God is not sitting here looking at all the needs that you have for the day and trying to check them off to make sure He's got you covered. He's not a rabbit's foot God. He's not a genie where we rub the Bible and something pops out that makes life a little bit better. That's not God. God has a grand, glorious, eternal perspective that includes the greatest reward we could possibly ever receive. And that's our relationship with Him. Folks, I, just being honest, and I won't go into it right now, but last week was a hard one for me personally, even to the point where during Bible study last Wednesday night, I was struggling just in the teaching of it. Because there are some things going on, and you know, when you stand up to teach the Bible, I don't know how people do it who... I, I, I can't just shut down. You know, when I'm teaching, I don't go into Bible teaching mode, but Rick's life is just says, no, I mean, I'm still feeling and thinking all the stuff, like all of you are. You're sitting there taking notes and reading through the Bible, and, and other things are running through your minds as well. Thinking about what happened with the kids today, and why they won't listen to you anymore, and you know, I mean, all this stuff. This is all going on up here too, and last week was hard. And I, I got home after Bible study, putting the Bible down, just doing this, you know, human thing. And late at night, before I went to bed, I just opened up chapter 15, because normally I try to get right on to it the next morning, and so I thought, I'll just, I'll just read through the chapter, and I hit verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me and said, don't be afraid. I'm your very great reward. I'm your shield. And I read verse 1, and I closed the Bible, and I just thought, that's it. That's what I needed. 
That was it. Folks, if we got no further into the chapter tonight, and we're going to, but if we didn't, it's enough to know that He is your shield, your very great reward. So, here's Abram fresh off the field, and he gets an incredible endorsement from the word of the Lord, but does he understand it? That's the question. Look at verse 3, or verse 2. Abram says, in response to this fantastic, wonderful shield and reward, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? Hey, you missed it. Well, what will you give me since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now hang on, as soon as this jet flies by, I have something very important to tell you. Okay. God says to Abram, I'm your shield and your reward, and Abram says, what reward are you going to give me? I just told you what I'm getting. It's me. But... Remember, God is incredibly patient with this child of faith, Abraham. And so God says, all right, all right, listen, Abram, I'm going to do something here. Before we go on past this verse, though, you might want to circle the name of Abram's servant, Eleazar. Circle that name because it has tremendous significance, especially later on in Genesis. Eleazar means God of help or God my helper. Now, the connection is here. Listen to this. John 14, 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And John 16, verse 7 says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's the Holy Spirit got to do with Abram's servant, Eleazar? I'll tell you when we get to chapter 24. So, I hate that. But circle that, because when we get to chapter 24, we're going to go right back and, and see Eleazar, and you're going to remember, oh yeah, yeah, his name means God my helper. And I will give you this much, Eleazar is a type, he's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see a story unfold. That, that it's, it's one of these where we look at the chapters and we look close, but when you pull back and look over several chapters, there's an amazing picture that comes out, and you need to just remember who Eleazar is. But we'll come back to him. Now, Abram says, look, Lord, the only heir I have is the oldest born servant in my household, Eleazar. So what kind of a reward could you be talking about? Now, in those days, under the code of Hammurabi, what happened was if you didn't have an heir in your household, your oldest living servant or the oldest living person born in your household, even if they weren't born from you, became your heir. At this point in the story, old man Abram, and he is getting up there in, in years. He's childlike in faith, but he's old physically. He doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have a son. So all of his vast riches and wealth goes to Eleazar at this point. But listen to the graciousness of the Lord, this huge heart of the Father. Verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, literally from your inward parts. God says, Abraham, your heir is going to come from you, right out of you. He shall be your heir. 
He doesn't say, Abram, you doofus, you don't get it. Come on. He doesn't say, hey, I'm your reward. Stop looking for something else. Man, when are you going to clue in? Come on, have a little faith. No, he just responds to Abram. He goes to Abram where he is, which is what he does with all of us. He comes right where we are. And there are times when we feel so satisfied in our spirituality, so having arrived, so at peace with who we are in God. And what we don't see is from his perspective, he's still going a long way just to be where we are. But he's making that trip because he wants to be where we are. Because he loves us that much. So he goes to Abram in verse 5. He took him outside. And he said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now Abram, it's it's figured that he probably could see if he actually counted them. About 4,000 stars up there. But that wasn't even close to all the stars in the heaven. Uncountable. Carl Sagan stated that there are as many stars in the sky... And scientists tend to lean this direction. There are as many stars in the sky as there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. How do they figure that out? Well, if you take a square foot of sand and begin to count the grains, and then you kind of figure it out. And, but they, they say it's about equal, number of stars to grains of sand. Isn't that interesting that Carl Sagan was not the first one to discover this fact? That God was. Genesis 22:17, God says to Abraham, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand, which is on the seashore. You know what else the Bible says is like grains of sand? Psalm 139, which we just sang, verse 17 tells us, How precious are your thoughts to me, or of me, or toward me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. God's thoughts about you, personally, outnumber the grains of sand. He cannot stop thinking about you. This great shield, this very great reward, is so in love with you, He never stops thinking about you. That's amazing. Pentium processors, by the way, remember the computer chip company, Intel, they, they keep coming up with faster and faster and faster chips. And right now, but I think the most recent one is the Pentium M with Centrino technology, and it can do all this wireless stuff, and it's pretty amazing. But back at Pentium 2, a couple or three microchips back, check this out. The Pentium 2 could process one trillion calculations per second. Isn't that amazing? You know what's even more amazing? These little microchip processors are made of sand. Silicon, the same thing. And they can hold thousands, trillions of bits of information in these tiny little processors. Man, expand that to the mind of God and you still will not approach how vast are his thoughts. can't even begin to imagine the amazing mind of the Father. Now watch this, the next verses are key to salvation. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord... And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And right there we have not only something wonderful, fantastic, incredible, but we also have one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. For Christians to understand, to grapple with. Because on either side of a spectrum you have those who say, so all you have to do is just say, I believe. And then you've got John MacArthur on the other side of the spectrum with with the book he's writing saying, it's hard to believe. 
You can't just pray a prayer and walk away and that's it, you're done. There's more to it. And there are people over here saying, no, there's not. You just believe and that's it. What does the Lord say? Verse 6 says, he believed in the Lord, Abram did, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. By the way, this is another first mention in the Bible. It's the first time that the word believe is even mentioned in Scripture. Right here in verse 6. And it is in a key verse that is, that is repeated in the New Testament three or four different times, actually quoted directly from here. And you need to know that Christianity stands alone from all of the world's religions as the only one that teaches salvation by faith. It's the only one. Would you really want to be a Muslim and have to be good enough that your good deeds outweigh your bad so that you could make it into heaven? That's what Islam teaches. Would you even want to be a Jew at this stage of the game in history? Knowing that you had to keep every single one of the laws. Would you want to be a Hindu seeking a higher form of existence next time around based on how you live this time? I'd be so afraid I was going to come back as like a dog or something. You know? I mean, a cute dog would be okay, but... <laughs> Flip in your Bibles quickly to Galatians chapter 3. This question of faith and righteousness and how this all works, I think Paul explains it beautifully. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 tells us Galatians 3.6 even so Abram Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham listen to verse 7 again it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer verse 10 for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse for as many as are of the works of the law are under, under a curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them verse 11 now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith the righteous man shall live by faith hang on here verse 12 however the law is not of faith on the contrary he who practices them shall live by them in other words if you practice the law if you want to live your life by the law well then that's how you're going to be judged you will have to be perfect but he goes on verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us that's why we're going to see the passion he became the curse. He took on himself what was meant for us. If you decide to see that movie, understand that what you're watching was your punishment. It's what should have happened to each one of us based on the sin in our lives. But Jesus took that on himself. He became the curse. For it is written, verse 13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through faith. 
the only religion in the world that teaches salvation by faith. And Paul in another place, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what do I do? On this continuum, where do I fall? Do I just believe and walk around happy and just, that's it? I I said the prayer and I'm done? Or do I go all the way over here and and live out that? How do do I do this? John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. And they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? How do we do that? How do we work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Are you ready for it? Here it is. This is what you do. You believe in Him whom He has sent. Oh, that throws me right back into that whole belief thing. So I'm still back over here to saying, I just believe. That's cool. That's the work. I believe. Let's go get some coffee. We're done. I mean, is that it? I just believe. Folks, we need to understand this. It's so important. Flip in your Bibles to James, but as you're flipping, listen closely. Belief drives everything. Belief drives everything. Belief precedes everything. Belief is the reason why you do what you do. It's not the other way around. And the problem, sometimes in Christianity, when people get really legalistic and start living out by law, is that we think that works drive our faith. I've got to prove my faith, so I'm going to do all these things to prove that I believe. And that's flip-flop. The reality is that your belief causes you to act. Your faith produces the fruit. And not the other way around. James chapter 2, verse 14. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, Well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, James says, and this should be a shuddering verse, literally. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Okay, so the demons believe that doesn't save them. Read on. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? A story that is yet coming in our studies. Verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now flip back to Genesis 15. Listen, Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was not instantaneously righteous. He was given, as we've said in here before, a credit of righteousness. A pass that he had to hang on to. That this pass, this faith, ultimately will be redeemed in Christ. Ultimately, you will be righteous, Abram, because you believe in me. Because you believe it will happen. But we've been watching this man of faith, Abram, again, from a childlike faith, grow into maturity. And he's getting more and more mature as he walks along with the Father. And at this point, God says, I'm going to give you a son. 
And Abram goes, I believe you will. I, I accept that, Lord. I believe you. And God just looks down and goes, that's great. His faith is growing. He's trusting me now. And the ultimate picture of this is when we get to that point where God says, Abraham, now you have your boy. You've got the life I promised you. Things are going well for you. I want, to take, I want you to take your son Isaac and go offer him on an altar. I want you to raise a knife above your head and drive it into his heart and kill your son for me. Now, why does, Abram, why does God do this later in Abram's life as opposed to earlier? Because he needed his faith to be ready to handle that kind of work. But remember, it wasn't the work that saved Abram. It was his faith. It was the fact that he believed. But James, in his whole faith without works thing, what he's saying is, you can't just say, I believe, and then you go walking off. Belief is active. Faith is belief that is, that is working. Otherwise, it's not really belief. If I say to you, the Deception Pass Bridge out here, out here, is, is one of the strongest bridges out here. It, it's, it's very safe to cross. But you know that I will never walk across that bridge. Because personally, I'm not really sure it's that strong. But I keep telling you, no, 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 I, it's, it's a strong bridge. Well, then why don't you cross it, Rick? Well, I'd really rather not. Pretty soon, you begin to wonder, does he really believe that bridge is that strong? And in the same way, if I say, oh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I give Him my life. I trust Him. But nothing changes in my life. After a while, aren't you going to start going, does he really believe that? See, faith without works is dead. Where we get all twisted up is when we begin to believe that the works themselves save us. And they don't. They don't. Our salvation, folks, is motivation for the works and not the other way around. Does that make sense? That is so important in the way we live our lives because what we end up doing is if we believe that it's, you know, it's only my faith, then we say, I, I'm not even going to do anything because I don't want to mess up my faith. Or if we say, it's only my works, then we say, yeah, I believe, but I've got so much to do right now. And if the Lord comes back, well, I'll let Him know if I've got time to go. I've got so much work to do. And either way, it's extreme. And the bottom line is, your faith in God will drive your works. There will be fruit from those works. James is saying if you don't do anything, then you really don't believe in the first place. Because you naturally are going to follow the path of your faith. Which is why, again, Paul says by grace, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. I have to believe. But once I believe, once you know, Abram believes that he's going to have a son, things begin to, to really go in a new direction for him. Once I believe that Jesus has saved me, it changes everything. Now back to Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And the Hebrew word for righteousness here literally means rightly clothed. He rightly clothed Abraham. Which is exactly what Adam and Eve needed. They needed a right clothing. They tried to clothe themselves, you may recall, with fig leaves. Another scratchy, irritating type of a plant. But God sacrificed animals, that first picture of sacrifice, to cover them, to clothe them, to rightly clothe them. And Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 tells us, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That is a right 
kind of clothing. And that's what righteousness means, rightly clothed. Now let me ask you a very serious question and think about this individually and personally in your lives. The question is this. Do you believe that God has clothed you with salvation? Do you really believe that? Have you really accepted that truth? Has God saved you? Now I ask that because it is amazing to me how often Christians come up and say, How do I really know I'm saved? How do you know you're saved? What do you mean how do you know you're saved? Do you believe that Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected? Have you turned your life, your sin over to God? Have you repented? How can you say, I'm not sure if I'm saved? John said these things were written that we might believe and that by believing we might have eternal life in His name. Folks, if we accept Jesus' clothing by faith, we become righteous. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. By the way, that's such a cool picture in baptism. That, that whole picture of, of being completely surrounded in the water, submerged into the symbolic picture of Christ covering you, of His righteousness covering you and clothing you, that's what happens. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, and listen, you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to promise. Now let's look at verse 7. So he said to him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abraham kind of stumbles along and says, Oh Lord God, how may I know? How, how may I know that I will possess it? At this point, again, I start getting a little exasperated with Abraham. What do you mean, how will you know? Abram, come on. How many times does God have to talk to you face to face for you to know? But he asks the question anyway, and God says, fine. Let's get serious, Abram. Do you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Let's cut a covenant together. Verse, let's see, 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two. And he laid each half opposite the other. This was bloody. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey now came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain. I've got that underlined, highlighted, and circled in my Bible. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. By the way, they were in Egypt 430 years, exactly. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, that is Egypt, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation... They will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete or full. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces 
And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This, by the way, was a common practice in the day. When people made a deadly, serious covenant, they would take an animal and they would literally carve it in two and lay the pieces on either side with sort of a walkway of blood in between them. And they would meet in the middle and clasp hands and say, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. That's how serious this was. And when God had Abram do this, something amazing happens. Abram does not walk through them and meet God in the middle. Abram's fast asleep over on the ground. No, instead, God himself passes through. He takes this pathway of blood himself. Not only is it a foreshadowing of the death of Christ, it is the absolute unconditional promise that God is making to Abram, I will do this. I will follow through. Now it's interesting to me, and there are several times you're going to see this in just a moment, this type of thing. God made Abe wait all day and into the night until he fell asleep before he showed up to complete the covenant. From the time that God said, bring this to me, you notice in verse 11, birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abraham had to, he had to drive them away. So some time is going by here. He's having to drive away the birds and then it gets dark, sun goes down and Abram falls asleep into a deep sleep. He had to wait and wait for God to come and pass through in covenant with him. Now hold that thought and look back at verse 13. Tells us God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And down in verse 16 it says, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Quick little rabbit trail. Why did they go to Egypt? Why did the Israelites go to Egypt for this 400 year period? Because the sin of the Amorites needed time to fester. What does that mean? It means that God needed to clear Israel out and give the Amorites, who are, by the way, the Amorites is just symbolic of all the ites, Canaanites, Perizzites, the Jebusites, all the ites there in the land. The Amorites are just a symbolic picture of all of these people. God gave them 400 years to repent of their ways. This is the patience of God. He waited 400 years to punish them. How bad were these Amorites? Well, history tells us that they sizzled their babies on the arms of the god Molech. That's, that's one way that they worship their god. Taking their live children and putting them up there. Pedophilia was rampant. It was a sick place. They were diseased. They were defiled, depraved. They were doomed. But yet, even at that point, God tells Abram, your people are going to be for four generations, 400 years, are going to be in a land that is not theirs before I bring them back here. Why? Because God had mercy for the Amorites as well as for Israel. Even then, God is looking out for the Gentile. Now, a quick note on the word generation here. How many years again were Abram's descendants to be enslaved in Egypt? 400. What generation will return to the promised land? The fourth. So what does this tell us about what God considers to be the span of a generation? How long would a generation be? About a hundred years. Hold that thought and flip to Matthew 24. Now I happen to know a handful of you have heard this in here. Hearing it again always helps. Those who haven't heard it, I want you to listen very closely. 
Because you've heard me mention from time to time that I do believe we're living in the last days. And I don't believe the generic last days like Paul talked about the last days in his life 2,000 years ago or Peter talked about the end times in his life 2,000 years ago. I truly, personally, believe that we are in the end of the end of the last days. That we are in those days. Why do you believe that, Rick? Matthew chapter 24. Let me just show you something quickly here. Verse 32. Jesus says, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things and this whole chapter, you can go back and read, he is talking in times scenario here. All these things, when you see them, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, you read that and you say, okay, wait a minute. He says all this stuff is going to happen, the glorious return of Jesus. He talks about the rapture in this passage. He talks about different things that will happen at the very end of time. And he says, but all these things are going to happen before this generation passes away. And you read that and say, hang on. That generation did pass away. So maybe, was he wrong? What was he saying? He's talking about the generation that is, a, that is alive at the time of the fig tree blossoming. Well, what does that mean? Throughout scripture, the fig tree is always a symbol of Israel. It's a picture of Israel. And literally for, what was it, 1800 and, I had it written down. Where is it? 1878 years, Israel did not even exist as a nation. But again, as we've talked about, 1948, Israel became a nation. The fig tree began to blossom again. Listen to what Jesus says. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. Once again, as, by the way, a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Check this out. A prophecy fulfilled in our day. Well, not quite in my day, a little before my day, but in our generation. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion, which is Jerusalem, travailed, she also brought forth her sons. God says, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? You see, Israel did become miraculously a nation in a day in 1948. So I would put to you this, that the generation at the, alive at the time of the blossoming of the fig tree will not pass away until all the things Jesus says in Matthew 24 take place. That is, the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ will all happen in the generation alive at the time of the blossoming of the fig tree, which is a representation of Israel. That being the case, this little rabbit trail, there's a reason for this. That being the case, how long does God recognize a generation to be? A hundred years. So 2048. Now I'm not putting that date as this is when Jesus is coming back. But here's the reality, folks. In the Bible, there are three different specific uh, notations of how long a generation is. And in one place, it looks like about 40 years. and In another place, it's referred to as 70 years. And in this place, in Genesis 15, it's 100 years. So max, and I could be totally wrong about this, 
But if Israel truly is the fig tree that blossomed in 1948, that fulfillment of prophecy, and this generation will not pass away before all these things take place, and the generation is up to 100 years, then sometime between 1948 and 2048, it's entirely likely Jesus will return. Now you hear that and you kind of go, oh... 2004, 44 years, okay, I can get some things done. What do we do with that? Doesn't the Bible say that, that we're not supposed to know when Jesus is coming? Yeah. Well, not specifically. What the Bible says, Jesus said only the Father knows the day and the hour, but we can live our lives aware of the season. And that's what we need to do. Constantly looking at Scripture, constantly looking at the world in which we live, and placing the two side by side and understanding, because we're not children of the darkness, as Paul said, we are children of light. We're not children of the dark, but the day, Paul says, should overtake us by surprise. You shouldn't be surprised. When Jesus calls, come on home, on that day we should go, I knew it, I knew it. It's this generation. I had a feeling. That's what I was reading, I, I just knew it. They might say, okay, so you're talking about living like a fanatic. No, I'm talking about living like Paul did. I'm talking about living like Peter and the apostles did. Expecting Jesus' return every single day. And there's good evidence to think that it could happen in this generation. I'm living my life for his return. What's interesting to me is that Israel waited 1,878 years to become a nation again. Hold that thought. We've also been waiting since 1948 for Jesus' prophecy to be fulfilled. But hold that thought. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the great river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Look at the size of this landmass. Some of you have heard this. This is roughly 300,000 square miles between the Nile and the Euphrates. But Israel at the top of her game has only held one-tenth of the promised land. God promised Abraham 300,000 square miles. Israel under Solomon occupied 30,000 or, or 30, square miles. One-tenth of what God promised they would occupy. This land, Abram, he says, is your land. And Abraham's people have waited over 3,500 years to collect on this promise. Hold that thought. Now, you've been holding a lot of thoughts. But they all have to do with the exact same thing. Waiting. Abram has promised a son and by the way, after this promise that God makes to Abram that he's going to have a son from his own body, it's ten more years before Isaac comes along. Now, if God made a promise to me and I had to wait ten months, I'd have some trouble. If I had to wait ten minutes sometimes, like, Lord, how long? <laughs> it's been like, whew, twenty minutes now. You going to come through? Ten years that Abram had to wait. The Jewish people continuing to wait. All of this waiting that goes on and on. God makes Abraham wait into the night before he shows up for the covenant. God waits to punish the Amorites. 430 years. We waited 2,000 years for the fig tree to blossom. We're still waiting for Jesus' return. And Israel is still waiting to claim the promised land. What's the deal with all of this waiting? And my simple understanding is this. God often waits between the promise and the performance. He often did that. He often does that. There will be times in your life where you sense God is saying, this is what's going to happen. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and it just doesn't happen. 
And you begin to wonder, why? Why do I have to wait? And we look at the life of Abram and we see him waiting time after time after time for God to move. Why? Because faith is the language of eternity. Faith is the language that God wants us to learn how to speak. And faith is simply continuing to trust Him whether or not He has moved, knowing He will move, knowing He is going to do, knowing He he will follow through on His promise, whether we see the promise or not. Last verse, flip over to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is that grand hall of faith in the Bible where so many great people of faith are listed and and why they're listed as faithful. And it comes down toward the end and the writer in verse 32 of Hebrews 11 says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. Performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, and escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies back to flight, as Abram did. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And then it gets dark. Others were tortured not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, which is how Isaiah, by the way, was killed. I don't know if you knew that. They placed Isaiah into a hollow log, and they sawed the log in two, and that's how that prophet died. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I love verse 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And you think, wow, what an amazing cloud of witnesses, of faithful people. And listen to what we get to find out. Verse 39. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't get it. They got the promise, but they did not see the performance. Oh man, that's kind of anti-biblical, isn't it? Verse 40. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Folks, remember, God says, don't fear. I am your shield, but I am your reward. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. And no matter what happens in your life, whether you suffer from physical ailment or personal persecution, whether you have struggles or doubts or or fears or things that are put in front of you, insurmountable obstacles get in front of you, don't forget what your reward, who your reward is. The very one we have faith in to take us through all these things is standing at the end of the race as the ultimate reward. A promise that will be fulfilled. And if we can trust in that, we have faith. That faith in God's grace will save. Father, we close out of Genesis 15. I I have to just be honest, this whole issue of faith continues to be a struggle because 
My heart wants to do. My humanity wants to work. I want to prove myself. I want to get out there, Lord, and, and do such things and accomplish such, such, such feats that at the end of my life, you'll look at me and go, Wow, you did just a great job, Rick. But Father, we all know the reality is that none of our works measure up and that our sin tends to blot out the good that we try to do. So Father, we need to pull back and we need to stop trying so hard and start believing more. Father, like the man who came to Jesus cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where we are tonight. We are a room filled with believers. We're here because we do have faith in you, God. Because at some point in our lives, we stepped up and said, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that your death paid for my sins. But Father, we continue like Abram to grow bit by bit, day by day, out of our childishness into childlikeness. And out of the smallness of belief into greater belief. And so, Father, we just pray tonight. Yes, Lord, we believe. But help our unbelief. As Abraham grew in faith, so may we grow in faith. Deeper and more powerfully because of your spirit at work in us. Thank you, Lord, for these words and for your, for your teaching tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.